0: Luke 12. If you have your Bibles, open up with me to Luke chapter 12. Two weeks ago, as I was last in this chapter, or in this book, we were at uh, chapter 11. We ended chapter 11, as you know. And in that last bit of chapter 11, we saw Jesus declaring woe on the Pharisees and on the lawyers. And we mentioned back at that time that woe is an expression of eternal judgment. I don't want us to miss that. It's easy to miss that. And easy to hear just Jesus uh, condemning them in the sense of, uh, woe, 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 you know, you're, you're bad people. But what he's saying is, woe in the literal sense of the word. As the judge of the world, Jesus alone has the authority to declare judgment, to declare condemnation, and he's doing it in those words. He's condemning those men for their hypocrisy. Now, as we move into chapter 12, we're actually going to begin with the last two verses of 11, because 11 and 12 connect together. Obviously, the writer did not create chapters when he wrote it, so he wrote it as a continuous thought. And I want you to see how the two fit together. Begin in chapter 11, verse 53. When he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, but there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. Now, I read those two sections together because at the end of chapter 11 and at the beginning of chapter 12, there are, we're told, literally thousands of people now gathered around as Jesus came out of the room, out of the home where he was having lunch with those Pharisees. And the word thousands there in the Greek, it's "murius," which we would translate literally into the English myriad, and myriad means literally 10,000. It can be used more generally to just refer to thousands, and that's how the translators in my version chose to take it. But it could also mean, literally, that approximately 10,000 people were there. Whoever, however many you're talking about, there's so many that they're pushing and they're jostling, and as the scripture says, they're stepping over one another. The word here for stepping, katapeteo, katapeteo in the Greek, it literally means trampling. So you're talking about a crowd of people so big and so anxious to get near Jesus that it's reaching the point of maybe being a little unruly, almost like a riot. You know, we've always heard in in the papers or in the television, we've seen examples in other countries where people riot at the opportunity to get into a soccer stadium or something, and they trample one another and they kill people. And I don't know that we're at that point here, but it's clear from the text that there is a bit of a hubbub. There's a bit of an energy in this crowd that's a bit unpredictable, there's so many of them that you really couldn't control them if you tried. And you, you, you put yourself in that moment as a disciple of Jesus among, amongst the Pharisees who we're told now are plotting to kill him and they're looking for ways to trap him. And you've got to be nervous. If you're a disciple in that moment, there's not a lot of comfort to be found in that scene. You're worried about what will happen to you and Jesus from the standpoint of the Pharisees. And on the other hand, you're worried about what the crowd will do to you if you don't do what they want or if you're not pleasing them in some way. And then we're told at the beginning of chapter 12, and this is why I connected the two together, the very beginning of chapter 12 says, under these circumstances, meaning in this moment, with all of this stuff I just described going on, under those circumstances, Jesus now begins this teaching at the beginning of chapter 12. The circumstances here are important because the disciples are beginning to feel the pressure that they have to become accustomed to if they're going to go out and do what Jesus is calling them to do in their ministry, this is maybe one of the first times they felt this way. It's not going to be the last. And I would argue that in their lives, as in their ministry, it was probably common. So it's actually a learning opportunity for them, and Jesus uses it as such. And he, he's concerned principally about the fact that what they're going to be called to do, the message they're going to be called to bring the world, is going to bring powerful enemies with it. And what are you going to do when those enemies begin to exert pressure upon you? And then, on the other hand, when the crowds begin to grow and exert their own form of pressure on you. What are you going to do in that moment? Look at the end of chapter 11 again. Just browse it with your eyes. The Pharisees, we were told, have been put on the spot in that lunch meeting that we read two weeks ago. And then, at the very end, we're told because of that, they're even more hostile to him than they've already been. And now they're determined to trap him. What does it mean when we hear the Scriptures say they want to trap him? What is it you would do if you are a Pharisee? How do you trap Jesus? And for what point? For what purpose? Well, don't make any mistake here. Trapping was a serious thing in the context of which we're talking here. It meant death. If they were successful in trapping Jesus, and by association, we're also talking about his disciples, if they could be trapped in some way, in the way it's meant here, it would mean the Pharisees would have a cause against them. They would have a charge against them. And the charge could bring the penalty of death. That was eventually how the Jewish leaders brought Jesus down. That was how they were able to put him on trial. The trapping here has to do with the law, of course, finding something he says or does that flies in the face of accepted Jewish law and carried a penalty of death in some cases. And they were looking for that. They were waiting for him to do something that could go, "Aha! we got him now, go to the high priest, tell him what we saw him do. The high priest will have no choice but to bring him on trial and condemn him to death. That And the the disciples knew that's what was going on. Jesus certainly did, but the disciples did also. They knew that's what was going on. They were at risk now if they carried the message Jesus was giving them. If they carried that message forward to the crowd, they could easily be trapped on the basis that they were going to be saying things counter to what the uh, Pharisees had written in their law. That would have been an opportunity to be trapped. And so the disciples are beginning to feel that heat. And it's a heath that's going to continue for as long as they stay associated with Jesus and with his message. And it's under these circumstances, then, that Jesus begins to teach the disciples. He begins by telling them, beware of the Pharisees' leaven, which is hypocrisy. It's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't say, beware of the Pharisees. You know, that would be the natural thing to say, right? Watch out for those guys. They're after you. Yeah, he doesn't say that. He says, beware of their leaven, which is hypocrisy. He doesn't want them to be worried about the men. He wants them to be worried about their particular influence, which is their hypocritical ways, their hypocritical influence. Now, leaven, if you don't already know, is is yeast. And yeast by itself is not a bad thing, though in Scripture it's commonly a symbol or a picture of something bad. Commonly a picture of sin, but, but in this case of a particular sin, of hypocrisy. And now, the fact that yeast isn't a bad thing, I mean, we know we use it in in all kinds of ways for fermentation, and we use it to help dough rise, obviously. Those are not bad uses of uh, of yeast. It's not to say that yeast is bad. But because of the way it works, it's commonly used to represent sin because it gives you a very good picture of how sin works within a body, within an individual, or within a group of people. If you think about how yeast works, you you add a little bit of yeast to dough. And when you initially add it, it's only in one place. I mean, if you have a lump of dough and I put yeast in it, the, the yeast isn't on the bottom of the dough yet. It's sitting on the top. And then I work it in, obviously, and over time it begins to work its way through the dough and have its effect on the dough. And likewise, sin, and in this case specifically hypocrisy, works exactly the same way. It starts somewhere, but it slowly moves and infects as it moves. And eventually it, it completely affects the entire thing, the entire body, if it's one person or if it's in the case of a group. It eventually touches everyone in the group. It doesn't just stop in one place. It grows and contaminates everything. Now, in this context, what Jesus is warning the uh, disciples about in the case of hypocrisy is something I don't think we fully understand, because while we're all willing to agree that sin in general can be bad, and yeah, if somebody sins, they can affect somebody else, and that's how Jesus means that it spreads. I don't think that's exactly the right perspective when it comes to hypocrisy. Let's define it, for example. What is hypocrisy? In its simplest terms, it is pretending to be something you're not. We talk about it in terms of, well, if you're being hypocritical, it means you're not doing what you say you're going to do. It's not quite that. That's a part of it. But more generally, it's just pretending to be something that you're not. And in that pretending process, you're going to say things, you're going to do things that are not truthful, yes. But you're setting yourself up in this, this whole picture, this whole image that is fundamentally flawed. It is not the truth. You are pretending to be something you're not. For the Pharisees, hypocrisy here meant something very specific. It meant pretending to love God, pretending that you are honoring God's law and honoring Him through it, while at the same time remaining an enemy of God, at the same time being an unbeliever and therefore being an enemy of God, though pretending that you're His greatest asset, that you're His most faithful follower. It's a completely hypocritical position. It's 180 uh, 180 degrees from the truth. Their true purpose and all that they did, and we've seen this already in the gospel record, was simply to glorify themselves and by doing so, win the praises of who? God? No. Men. Win the praises of men by glorifying themselves in the eyes of men. That is a 180 degree opposite view of what scripture would have us do, right? The hypocrisy of the Pharisees meant that they were condemned to hell because they never repented of their sin because that would be the opposite. The opposite of doing what they did is to lower yourself in the eyes of men, recognize our sinfulness, not be unafraid or not be afraid to admit we are sinners and lost and then appeal to God for grace and mercy. Proverbs 28:13, one verse says it this way, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. They're opposites. And in the case of someone who does not reveal their transgressions, who does not admit it, but walks around instead acting as if they have no transgressions to admit, that is a hypocritical person. That is the hypocrisy Christ is warning the disciples about. It is a form of works, of working your way to heaven on the basis of how you earn it through your own righteousness. Now, what's worse here for the Pharisees is they set themselves up as a gold standard. And here's where I think it starts to become more of an issue for us today. Think about how the Pharisees set themselves up in their society. They walked around with this hypocritical position, uh, hypocritical view of themselves, thinking that they're faultless when they were full of sin. And on top of that, now they tell the rest of the world, the Jewish population that looked up to them as Jewish leaders, and they, they said to the rest of the world, we're the gold standard. You need to do what we do if you want to please God. And that's where the leaven steps in. That's where the reference to leaven steps in. Other unsuspecting Jews in the Jewish population who would look up to the Pharisees and see that everything they did was worthy to be mimicked, worthy to be imitated, were going to be men and women who would fall into the same mistakes that the Pharisees made. Oh, the Pharisees act this way, talk this way, think this way. That's what I have to do if I'm going to please God. So a man or a woman, a Jewish man or woman, who desired to reach heaven would spend their lives trying to copy the absurd lifestyle of a Pharisee and obey their commands rather than God's. So that meant that one Pharisee could literally give birth to thousands of little Pharisees. Phariseelets. I don't know if that's... Is that a word? You know? No. Yeah, it is now. Daniel's telling me, no, it's not, Steve. So if a Pharisee is having that effect on the general population... Now think about the circumstances of the disciples now for a moment. You have pressure from two sides. You have a crowd of 10,000 who has come principally to hear the thing Jesus has been preaching. To see his miracles, yes, to be healed probably. But in general, they're attracted by the message of Christ. That's one group. And if you've ever had a 10,000 person crowd coming to you for something, um, are you going to be concerned that you can't fulfill their desires? Are you going to have some concern that that they might be upset if they can't get what they want? Think about what happens outside a soccer stadium when 10,000 people can't get tickets. You know, they, they get violent. Now, I'm not saying that was always going to happen here, but you can't help but feel some pressure from a big crowd who's come to you wanting something. Now, over here, you have the Pharisees who are waiting for you to give the crowd what they want because as soon as you do that, they'll have something to convict you against. All right, well, you're between a rock and a hard place. Who are you going to serve? And it's under those circumstances, Jesus says, beware the Pharisees' leaven, which is hypocrisy. Because if in that moment the disciples had seen that dilemma and said, well, I can't do what I want to do for the sake of the crowd because if I do it, I'll be killed by the Pharisees. I'll be taken in and judged and put to death. I'm going to change my story to satisfy them and give the crowd something other than what the crowd is looking for. That would be hypocritical on the part of the apostles, wouldn't it? That would be the leaven of the uh, Pharisees spreading to them in the moment. On the basis of what? On the basis of fear. On the basis of who they feared. I wish I could say that hypocrisy was a phenomenon unique to the Pharisees in first century Palestine, but we all know better, right? Hypocrisy has always existed in the church. And, and I'll tell you one, give you one quick example out of Galatians that you may have read. I want you to see now how closely, I mean just perfectly, this example that we get out of Galatians chapter 2 parallels... This situation that Jesus is warning the very men about. The men in the story I'm going to read you out of Galatians 2 are the same men who are sitting here right now hearing this message from Jesus. And look how they stumble, even though they've heard Jesus himself tell them not to do it. Chapter 2, verse 9 in Galatians. James and Cephas and John. Now, who's Cephas? That's another, name. That's another way of saying Peter in the Greek. So James, Peter, and John. Those three men, I guarantee you, are sitting here with Jesus hearing him talk to them right now. James, Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars... I love the way Paul puts that. Who were reputed to put, be pillars... Gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship... So that we might go to the Gentiles... And they go to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor... Was the very thing I also was eager to do. But when Cephas... Remember that's Peter... When Cephas came to Antioch... I opposed him to his face... Because he stood condemned. For prior to coming to the coming of certain men from James... Peter used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Paul here has got upset at Peter because Peter was practicing hypocrisy in the early church. Peter knew that the gospel had put an end to the law, to the practices under the law that Jews had beforehand been held to. Peter knew that now that the gospel had come, they were no longer held to the law. He knew that. Though he was a Jew himself, he had stopped practicing the law. That's what Paul means when he says he used to eat with the Gentiles until certain men came, Certain men came, in other words, with James and John from Jerusalem. Certain Jewish men. And when those men came to Antioch to visit, Peter got all uppity. And he decided that, well, I don't want to show them that I am living with Gentiles. I'm going to pretend again that I'm working under the law like any good Jew would. And he reverted back to living as if, as if the law still applied. He was being hypocritical. He had been teaching that the law didn't apply because the gospel now is the new covenant. We don't live under the old covenant. But as soon as somebody who is a Jew showed up, he pretends he's still under the Old Covenant. This is Peter. This is Peter, John, James. I mean, these are the pillars, as Paul put it sort of sarcastically, pillars of the early church. And they're doing exactly what Jesus is warning them about when he talks to them in front of this crowd. He says, the minute you fall prey to that same tendency to say what pleases men so that they like you more than God, then you are being hypocritical and it's the leaven. It's the problem that was common to the Pharisees spilling over into your life. And Paul, and I just wish we could all be like this, myself included, Paul had the courage and the love, frankly, the love for these men to step up in the moment and confront them in the right way, to point out their hypocrisy. Sometimes I think we associate discipline with not loving somebody. When if if you're a parent, you know exactly the opposite is true. Remember the old phrase, why do I spank you? Because I love you. To a child, it seems opposite. To a parent, we understand what that means. That's what Paul's doing here. He's spanking them, if you will, because he loves them too much to leave them in their hypocrisy. And as a church body, as any body, any church in the body of Christ, we really should have that same quality. We should have the same willingness when it's appropriate to take action to help a brother who's not doing the right thing, or a sister. I, I find it stunning here that he says, even Barnabas followed Peter's lead. If you have any doubt about the power of hypocrisy as leaven, as, as, a, as a thing that can spread in the body. Barnabas is walking side by side with Paul. Do you think Paul didn't lecture that guy while they would walk from place to place? How much did Barnabas hear from Paul in his life? And yet, this one moment is enough to kick Barnabas over, and he's following Peter in hypocrisy. That must have just killed Paul. He even mentions it here. Even Barnabas fell prey to it. So, if you're wondering, well, I'm not going to fall prey to hypocrisy. I live what I say, I say what I live. Well, good for you, but just remember some very strong people in the Lord fell before you. Be careful about assuming you'll never fall if you're not on guard against it. And this, I think, is such a perfect example of how hypocrisy works. We need to make sure we understand how that might work in our own life. For example, how do we fix hypocrisy? How do we address it in our own lives? Do we tend to hide the truth? Do we shrink back? Do we avoid confrontation? If you know that about yourself, I hate confrontation. I never confront anyone, not in my own family, much less a stranger. If you know that's your nature, and if that's my nature at times, if that's all our nature at times, we're prime candidates for hypocrisy to spread. And, And here's how it works. While we're busy being unwilling to confront somebody else in their hypocrisy, we're the next target. Remember, 11 moves So while we're willing to let it exist around us, it isn't going to be long before we fall into that trap. I often think that legalism in churches starts this way. People doing something they probably know they shouldn't, but because of outward appearances, they take on some behavior they think they should. And others around them know it's wrong and leave them alone, and eventually they're all doing it. And that's how churches, I think, get to a bad place. And that's what Jesus now is reminding the disciples about. He starts by saying, there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed or made known. Does this sound familiar? Only if you have a really good memory, I guess, because it's been a while. But this came up a few months ago in Luke chapter 8, when we were studying the parable of the sower and the seed. Jesus ends that parable, the sower and the seed parable, he ends with exactly the same statement. Listen to it again from that chapter. I want you to hear it in its context in chapter 8, verse 16. Jesus is just given the parable, and then at the end he says this, Now no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it over with a container, or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. So take care how you listen, for whoever has to him, more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away from him. If you see that, con- that, that statement now in its original context, back in chapter 8, then I think it helps you understand what he's meaning by it now here in chapter 12. Back in chapter 8, Jesus was reminding the disciples to commit themselves to maturing in their faith and to producing seed, which we understood back then was to reproduce our faith in others through the Word of God. That's the call of a Christian. Not just to be a Christian, not just to show up at church, not just to kind of look the part, but actually go to the point in our maturing that we're reproducing others in faith through the Word of God, through some means. Jesus says if they understand that they are working toward that greater reward in eternity then they are not going to forget their day of judgment. They're not going to start getting too myopic, too focused on today and forgetting that what they're doing all has impact into eternity. Because he says, everything they have done will be brought to light. That's his meaning of the statement back there. He says, nothing is hidden that will not become evident. Do you see the weight of that? What Jesus is saying is, there is a day to come when everything we've done, good and bad, will come to light. Now, we won't be judged on the basis of the bad because Christ paid the penalty for that. Hallelujah. But our good will be laid out as little as there may be. And on the basis of what there is, rewards will follow. And if you stop, if you live today without that in mind, it's not to say that the only reason we do anything good is because we're waiting for a reward. He didn't set it up that way. What he's saying is there's work to do in the next kingdom. There's a thousand years of work. And he says, I need to know who I can trust. And those who do much with what I give them here will be given greater opportunity to serve me in that future kingdom. That's, what, that's, the, that's the economy that Christ has given to us in the, in the Gospels. And, and that's what we see repeated in Paul's letters. And so he said, look, if you think that's not going to come to be, just remember, nothing is hidden that won't come to light in that day. Now, here again, Jesus uses that phrase in chapter 12, but now it's from the negative perspective. Now it's on the opposite side of the equation. He says, everything the Pharisees have done in hypocrisy, meaning hiding the true nature that they have while pretending to be these holy men, everything they're doing in that respect is one day going to be shown for what it is. Because in that same moment of judgment, in the the great white throne judgment, their their bad is going to be... Remember, the books are opened, and from the books, their deeds are, are recorded and read aloud... That's what Jesus is referring to here. And he moves beyond that thought into the verse, verse 3 in chapter 12, when he says, what they are, and this is the way I want to capture it for you, because I don't think it comes out well in the Luke version. It does better in the Matthew. He says, what they're too afraid to speak, even in private, they should be willing to proclaim boldly from the housetops. Remember the circumstances again. What they're trembling at the prospect of repeating to this crowd, knowing the Pharisees are against them, he says, "What you're, almost, what you're unwilling to speak now, except in private, you will one day be speaking from the housetops in boldness." Look at how Matthew puts it in 10, Matthew 10:27. Same verse, same comment, but look how Matthew records it. What I tell—this is what Jesus said. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. The way Matthew captures it gives us a greater sense of what Jesus is really saying here. He's saying, these things you've been told in private from me, it's your obligation to repeat them worldwide, on the housetops, in public. Now, what's going through the minds of the, uh, of the disciples as they kind of put all this together? He's saying, beware the, uh, beware the Pharisees and their hypocrisy, because nothing that's hidden now won't be known one day. Meanwhile, what you've heard in private, you need to be speaking out loud on top of the housetops. And they're sitting there going, are you nuts? I mean, I know we want to do this and we'll do it for you, Jesus, but, you know, why would we intentionally put ourselves on the line where we're going to be killed? How far is our ministry going to go if we just antagonize these guys who are after us in the first place? It makes no sense. Shouldn't we do this with a little more skill, a little, you know, a little bit more clandestine, a little bit more kind of quietly and get the word out without destroying it, or, you know, destroying our opportunity to spread it? No, look what Jesus says next. He encourages them to speak boldly, and He does it on this basis. Luke 12, verse 4, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, they have no more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. These verses, I think, are so tender and they're so encouraging. In fact, this is one of the very few places in any of the Gospels where you hear Jesus refer to the disciples as my friends. It's a very endearing term. It doesn't get used in any of the other synoptic Gospels. It only appears a couple times in John. He's speaking to them as a friend, telling them that they have something they should know that will give them comfort. And what is that thing they should know? Don't fear those who could kill the body. Fear God. Because that's what's at play here, right? The fear of these Pharisees versus the concern over whether I'm supporting these people and supporting their needs properly. Why is it important? Let me ask you this. Why is it important that they not fear someone who could kill them? <laughs> Isn't that natural? I mean, don't we all fear somebody who can harm us? There are people who live their lives fearing that someone going to harm them. The very fact that you have an alarm on your house And I had one in my last house, don't have one now because it's an older house, but the fact that we put an alarm on our house means we fear somebody. I'm not saying it's wrong, I'm saying it's proof of fear. It has to be, otherwise why would you have it? Why would you pay money for something that by and of itself doesn't protect you, it just notifies somebody else that you have somebody in your house that's not supposed to be there, so they can come and defend you against what? Against an attack, against a robbery. You fear that event. You're concerned over that. Now, you may not have called it fear. I may not have thought of it as fear when I signed up for a security service, right? But if truth be told, it traces back to fear, what you're afraid of. The reason that we should not fear those who can harm us is because fear leads us to do stupid things. Fear drives us to do really dumb things. Whatever we are most afraid of will determine how we act. Whatever we are most afraid of determines how we act. For example, if a person was faced with the choice of arriving late for work or speeding to work in order to get there on time and risking getting a speeding ticket, many of them might choose just to arrive late because they're more afraid of the speeding ticket and the resulting consequences than they are of just being late to work. But if that same person had already been late three times in that month, and this was their fourth time if they were late again, they're going to get fired, That person, on the other hand, will probably speed to work. Because now they're more afraid of being fired than they are of getting a speeding ticket. You see how fear works? They're afraid of both. But whichever thing you're most afraid of will determine your behavior. Knowing that, Jesus tells the disciples, fear God, not men. Because he knows there'll be fear of both from anyone who understands God and understands men. But you better make sure that the fear you care more about is the fear of God rather than the fear of men. Because though men might kill the body, that's the limit. That's the limit of their authority. And you're going to die anyway one day. It's not as though by by worrying about men, you're somehow avoiding dying. You're not changing that one bit. So in reality, the fear of somebody who could take your life is really a fruitless fear because it's not changing the fact that one day your life will be taken, somehow. But he says, but, but God, after he's taken your earthly life, You'll stand before him with his authority over where you go in eternity. And that's the one you should fear. So we should let his ways, his expectations, his instructions rule our behavior and not men's. It comes down to that. That's what's meant by fearing God, by the way. Have you ever seen that in scripture? Fear God and you wonder, well, I don't see him as a fearing, something I'm afraid of. I'm, I, I feel like a father in heaven. I, I don't feel afraid of him. I I respect, I love, I cherish, I, you know, but fear? Where does fear come in? It comes in here. It comes in in the same way you used to fear making your dad mad. Right? You loved your father, you cared about your father, you obeyed your father, but you also had a fear that if you had done the wrong thing, wait till daddy comes home. If you, at least if you had the kind of father I had. Which isn't to mean the father didn't love me, but I knew what he would do in the face of disobedience. I knew what authority he had in the face of disobedience. And if your father didn't quite live like that, you don't have that example. You can still understand it, I'm sure. I like the way Jesus puts this statement. He says, fear the one who is after he has killed the body can cast you into hell. Did you catch that? Did you catch the fact that he's reminding us here that the death of the body is under God's control? After he kills the body, he could cast you into hell. So, here's the irony. Even when we're tempted to fear men because we think they're going to kill us, we have to remember that it is God himself who holds the power of life and death so that we will not die until God permits it. Your day is appointed. Your day of death, my day of death, is already set. It's on a calendar in heaven. God knows the date, but you and I don't. But it's there. And you and I won't change it. So though we fear men, thinking they can kill the body, the irony here is the day you die is in God's control anyway. If he chooses that your life be taken by a robber, it's in his sovereign will for his eternal good purpose that it happened that way. When we get to heaven, maybe we'll find out why. So while we're busy fearing men, in some cases, and letting them control what we do, and letting our decisions be driven by them, the irony is, God has always been in control. He's still directing the day of your death. Meanwhile, you're just not obeying him, and you're missing out on the opportunity for what he would have for us. You see the the, the, the fruitlessness of that? And yet, in the moment, when you got 10,000 people on this hand and these and the other man over here with the power to put you to death on the other hand, that rationale seems to flee, and you're left with that gut reaction of fear of doing whatever you fear most, reacting against whatever you fear most. He's saying, well, if that's how you're going to be driven, at least remember, fear God more. Now, if Jesus' words don't strike you here as being very comforting, because that's what they're intended to be, comforting. If somehow that doesn't come across as comforting, let's just remember the rest of the verses I read. He says, even something as a sparrow, as meaningless and as countless as a sparrow, is and the point here being that there's so many of them, and they're so worthless, even in Jesus' day that you could buy five with two pennies which was a penny was in the context of their monetary system, that represented one-sixteenth of a day's wage. Very small amount of money in their day. If that even is yet significant enough that God knows every single one of them, can you imagine that? Can you think about that? How many billions of sparrows are there in the world right now? Worldwide. Sparrows live everywhere, pretty much. Billions of those little things, and he knows every single one of them. Which means, of course, that he also knows every other animal on earth right now. Not just sparrows, of course, how many billions and trillions I may be of animals in the world, he knows every single one of them. And if you ever have some you know problem grasping the enormity of what it means to be God, just dwell on that thought for a while and then of course, he repeats by remembering that if he knows all those animals, then he certainly knows all the people, and more than that, he knows every hair on the head of every person and it 's not euphemism it 's not just some poetic way of saying he knows you, I think it's meant literally, in the same way that he literally knows every sparrow. And if that's the kind of God you serve, with that kind of insight, that kind of attention to you in your life, then don't be afraid to serve him and do what he asks, because you have nothing to fear if God knows you and cares for you to that depth. It's not as though he turned away for a moment and the guy that can kill you comes on the scene and he's not watching. There's nothing to be afraid of. That's why I think, I remember a story as I was preparing for this, the story in Columbine where that girl in the library stood up in response to the gunman's request "Are there any Christians in the room. Now, that was a pretty foolish thing to do, wasn't it? Because she got killed and so you and I would sit there and say, well, if she just shut up her mouth and laid on the floor, she never would have been killed. Well, we don't know that, do we? First of all. Secondly, There has been a tremendous amount of good for the Christian faith that has come out of her death. There are memorials, there are annual uh, remembrances, there are stories, there have been books. Who knows how God has worked from that girl's one moment of testimony to bring countless number of people to Christ or to build up others in their faith. Who knows what he did with her. And if her only purpose in being born and existing on earth was for that purpose, I would argue she's probably done more for the body of Christ than many of us will ever do. Though she only lived to her early teens or however old she was. My point in this is, if she had been more fearful of that man than she was of God, she may have lived, maybe she wouldn't, but at the very least, she would have missed out on that opportunity to serve him in the way he called her to do. So don't fear men, even if he does take your life by your action. Glory to God. That's why we've been given life. And in our life, I think sometimes it doesn't take that dramatic form of the girl in the library. I'm more worried personally in my own life, speaking for myself, about the kind of pressure that says we have to uh, succeed in this life, we have to make a good living, we have to earn for retirement, we have to make sure we have a big enough house and two cars and 2.5 kids and whatever else the world says is normal. That's what I'm more worried about. That's the thing that I think actually results in more fear and behavior on the part of Christians that's not helpful than some of the more dramatic examples we might list. Because it's, and think of it this way, as we lose, kind of leave this point, but I just want to leave you with this thought, because this thought struck me, and it, it was convicting for me. The pattern of, of Christians to live just like the world, you know, with our 401Ks and our two cars and our income and all, you know, the, the model American family life. The fact that Christians mimic that so perfectly with non-Christians, I mean, pretty much we look the same, if you really get down to it. Is that pattern there because of our fear of God? Do we mimic this pattern of the world because we fear God and we think that's what he's told us to do? Or are we doing it because we fear the same things the unbelieving world fears? Being poor in retirement, not having a big enough house, you know, whatever those things are. If that's the pattern, then it begs the question, what's driving the pattern? I think we're hard-pressed to say that the pattern of lifestyle that most Christians, myself included, share with the unbelieving world is a pattern built on fears that they share as well. Not fear of God. Because either we're doing it because God just happened to ask us to live a life identical to an unbeliever, which I doubt, or we're doing it because we fear the same things the world fears. Because if I think, personally, if I truly fear God more than the world, the world's fears, then I would expect my life to look radically different, wouldn't I? I'd expect that a lot of things in my life would be different than the rest of the world because I fear a person in the form of God whose instructions are radically different than the world. And they think we're crazy for all the weird things we do. And we do a little of those things. There's times I'm sure we've taken stands in our family and other places that are different than the world. That's, that's healthy. That's what we should be doing. I just wonder if we aren't willing to take it far enough because we don't know who to truly fear. So, Jesus, he's, dis- he's concerned about the disciples. He's concerned about how they're going to react to this fear that they're going to face and the hypocrisy that they're going to see. And then he says in verse 8, I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men... The Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. We'll end with those verses, and I just want to make the obvious connection with what we've already been studying. The reason Jesus wants these men to stand so firm and to do the work of the ministry, despite the opposition that they're going to face, and despite the fear that they're going to feel, is because the stakes are so high. Because the mission He's given them is that important. Those who confess Christ are saved. Those who deny Him will be condemned. And on the shoulders of 12 men, and ultimately only to be 11, as you remember, by the time Christ is gone, on their shoulders stands a message that the whole world has to have or be condemned. Think about the responsibility. We worry about whether or not we're going to get the work done we've been assigned at work, or clean the house, or whatever it is we do in our our daily walk. Can you imagine now being on top of that, being told, by the way, the whole world's future (laughs) depends on whether or not you're willing to go out with a message that people will hate you for and, and condemn you for. They have this privilege and they have this responsibility and they cannot shrink back in the face of fear. And just as we studied a few verses back in chapter 11, those in Jesus' day who stood with the Pharisees and accepted what they said, that Jesus was actually Satan, they're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They wouldn't get a second chance. They will have lost their opportunity to be forgiven. But that, as I said last time, is unique to that day. But those were the stakes. And to make sure the disciples understood how serious things would be for them in the midst of this mission, he ends with a sobering comment. It's not a comment to get you all excited, is it, to go out and do ministry? Oh, b- by the way, uh, when you are dragged before the authorities and condemned to death, you know, here's what I want you to do. What? I didn't see that coming. You know, what, what are you talking? It's almost like an aside. Oh yeah, by the way, here's one more point. When you get out there, it it, it almost would catch them, I'm sure, off off guard. And what are you saying, Jesus? What do we have to look forward to here? Well, what they had to look forward to was they're going to be persecuted. They're going to be accused by the Pharisees. They're going to be dragged into court at some point. And for the most part, all except John, at least as far as church tradition goes, all of these men except John were put to death on the basis of the mission they were given. That's how Jesus elected to end their life, on the basis of that mission. But he says when you're in those moments and you're worried, here again, don't fear them. Don't be worried. God will give you the words you need to use in that moment. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. In the light of what we've just read, you don't want to make the mistake of hearing what he says there at the end of verse 12 as some promise to protect them. No, 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 no. What he's saying is what happened to Stephen. Remember the first martyr of the church out of Acts? What happened to Stephen? Stephen gives this amazing monologue capturing the history of the nation of Israel and God's working through that history to produce the Messiah. He testifies to Christ in this marvelous monologue. And what is the effect of that, which I believe clearly is in in line with what Jesus is saying right here. That was a product of the Holy Spirit in the moment, giving him the words to speak. So Stephen saw the result of this promise, but what was the outcome of that? It made the crowd even more stirred up, and they stoned him to death. So the words here are not intended to promise, oh, and this will get you out of your trap. No, what he's saying is that your testimony, even in the midst of that persecution, is still the point, not your bodily life. That's not the main point. Don't fear men, serve God. And as we end this morning, let me just encourage you and encourage everyone if I can to say that the stakes are the same for us today as it was for Jesus in that day and the disciples. Exactly the same. I mean, I'd love to be able to say you're never going to be hauled into court, persecuted for your faith and put to death over it. I I doubt that will happen. But you know, even in the U.S., I'm not sure anymore about whether you can... Take yourself on that promise. I think the world's changing even before our eyes. And Scripture says that in the end times, it will change even more dramatically. So if we're still around as God reaches the last of the days, we'll expect to see exactly that kind of persecution. But regardless, regardless of whether or not you and I personally encounter that kind of persecution, I can tell you that we're no different in terms of the apostles when we talk about the mission we've been given. You hear me on that? Our mission is no different. Our mission is fundamentally no different out of Scripture than the one that was given to those 12 men. If we don't appreciate that we are expected, no, let me say it differently, we are required out of Scripture to carry the gospel message far and wide and to do it continually in all we do, in, in everything we do. If we don't appreciate that we are expected to do that, then we have to see ourselves as guilty of fearing men more than fearing God. I don't know how else you could conclude. If we know what we're to do, we understand what it requires, and we don't do it, then I can only conclude it's because we fear man more than God. We fear our reputation. We fear what people think of us. We fear our jobs. We fear our family you know, connections. We don't want to have strife. We don't want to have people look down on us and think we're strange. Whatever. Those fears are outweighing our fear of what God is going to expect of us in the moment we stand before him. Because that moment's coming for all of us. We are not in control of who believes. I know that. You know that. But we are accountable for what we do in this life with the gifts and the calling God gives each of us. And it's all that he has done in bringing us into life, gifting us, and giving us opportunity. They're all for one purpose, to declare the truth of the gospel in our day. That is the only reason we exist if we are glorifying God. And as Jesus told the disciples, when we encounter a difficult moment because of the efforts we might take to spread our faith... The Holy Spirit is going to guide us in what we are to say, and we're not to worry about the outcome. We can trust the God who has numbered the hairs on our head to take care of us according to His will for our lives. That's His promise. Rest in that promise and do His work. Let's go out and do the work of the ministry as we end today. Father, I praise You and I thank You for the opportunity to serve You in this way. How often is it, Father, that we take lightly our responsibility to serve You? We may serve You, Father, in... The way we conduct ourselves in our own lives, as Romans 12 says, Father, we are to give ourselves over in our body even as our form of worship, and we do that, I'm sure, as best we can. We minister, Father, into our families. We often raise our children in godly ways and support our spouse in the ways you give out of Scripture, and again, Father, we serve you in that. But, Father, we know without even taking a moment to study, we know from what we've already learned that ultimately our calling in this world, and in the time you give us, is to spread the good news, to be a light. And a light, Father, is not lit so that it can be put under a blanket. It's not lit, Father, so that it would not be seen. It is in this world, we are in this world, we know from Scripture, so that what you have given us through the gospel would be seen by others. And not just in the way we live, that is truly our witness in action, no doubt, Father, but you do expect us, you do call us to take the good news to other men in a specific way by teaching and preaching the gospel in whichever, whatever way you give us. And to whatever extent our abilities allow. And to not shrink back from that, Father. To not be afraid to see that person on the other side of the counter in the grocery store or that person in the aisle at work as someone you would desire to save by your word if we would only bring it. Let us not be fearful of them and what they think of us and how they might react, Father. Let us fear you far more, for you, Father, are the only one deserving of fear and respect. Father, we thank you that you brought the word to us. I pray, Father, that it has its desired effect in the hearts of those who hear it. Gift us, Father, call us and show us where to serve you. Give us a heart to do it. May this fellowship, Father, bring you glory in all we do. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.